Our God and our Father, we praise You for Your glory. O Lord, You are the glorious One. You are the pinnacle of all goodness and virtue. We are filled with joy at the very thought of You, God. Lord, You are perfect. You're holy. You're gracious and loving. God, You are just. You're altogether righteous. You're all-powerful and all-knowing, everywhere present. God, we praise you. We bless your holy name. We give thanks to you for your goodness and your mercy to us, not only for the gift of life, but, God, even a redemption from our sins through the precious blood of Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Master, our Lord, our King. We thank you for the privilege that we have to know Him, to walk in fellowship with Him, to follow after Him, even to love Him and worship Him with all that is within us. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, who changes us and conforms us so that we might become like Jesus. And God, we thank you for the gift of faith and the grace that you give us to live the Christian life, to walk even through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, even there you are with us. And we thank you for the great privilege that we have to be called children of God. So Lord, today as we look into your word, we pray that you would give us greater understanding of yourself, your person, God of your plan of redemption, even the gospel of our Lord Jesus Teach us, Lord, to know and understand the good news and help us to be proclaimers of that good news to a lost and dying world. We honor and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. With that, I want to remind you that there are some companion teaching CDs that we have, and there is a new one this morning, and it's number, do you recall? Six. It's number six. Okay, so the ones we recently handed out are 4, 5, and 6. There are two by R.C. Sproul. This last one is by John MacArthur. It's called Unmasking the Pope and the Catholic System. And uh, it is a teaching that John MacArthur did specifically about the papacy and how the papacy relates to the Catholic system. And, uh, of course, he's speaking rather critically uh, in light of the scripture. And there is a lot to be gleaned there. And so that is uh, yet another CD that we're handing out this morning. I want to encourage you to get those companion CDs. They are very, very helpful in understanding the things that we're learning and covering. How many of you got the ones from R.C. Sproul and thought they were helpful? Okay. I'll bet that's everybody who got them and listened to them. (laughs) Right? So I want to encourage you, grab those CDs. There's no reason why you shouldn't grab those CDs and listen to them. Not only that, they'll make for a great family Bible study discussion time. So uh, you can sit down with your wife and kids. You can put the CD in the CD player. You can listen to the things that are said. You can get out your Bible. You can follow along. And then you can have a good discussion about what it all means. Amen? Amen. Okay, then. With that, I want to just give you just a little bit of review from last week. I'm going to start down at the bottom of page 94. 
But we've been talking about the doctrine of justification by faith. And as we're doing that, we have highlighted the Protestant Reformation, which is that uh, reformation of the church that took place basically from 1215 A.D. through about 1689 A.D. and uh, really focused more on the time period between 1516 A.D. and 1563 A.D., where the men were formally protesting the one true church at that time, which in fact was the Roman church. And uh, so we talked at length about that. We talked at length about what the Protestant Reformation was. We talked at length about what the protest was. And of course we're going to talk more about that today. And we're going to look more specifically at rites and traditions of the church of that day in order to understand what they were really protesting. And, of course, the goal of all of this is really to get a grasp on what the doctrine of justification by faith really is, because it was, in and of itself, the central controversy that the protesters were protesting. And, of course, it had many related and important things, like, for instance, the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is the fact that the Bible is the only and all-sufficient rule for faith and and practice. Um, However, the doctrine of justification by faith really is that heart of the gospel that was under controversy because of what the church had become as it morphed down through the ages. And you remember I was talking to you about how the church had not always really been in that very... Uh, a difficult situation that it was in at that time period, but that over many, many centuries of change and religious tradition, the church had morphed into something very different than what the apostles and Jesus had taught Christianity to be. And so, if you will, we're going to look at some of that today and try to understand uh, and get a, a feel for what was really going on and then to try to understand what the reformers were saying. But the goal and the purpose and all of that is not specifically to bash the Catholic system, but in order to see clearly what these fundamentals and essentials of the Christian faith really are. And furthermore, I want to say that if you've been coming to this class for any time at all, you realize that it's not just Catholics and Catholic doctrine that I talk about, right? Yeah, well, so I... Uh, frankly, I'm not bashing anybody. I'm not bashing any people. And I want to make that clear. What I am very critical about is false doctrine, false teachings, false representations of the truth of God as revealed in the Bible. And so you'll frequently hear me talking about, for instance, the largest church in America, which is evangelical. And uh, I point that out. I point out the pastor by name. I make... uh, Uh, statements very critically about what they're all about and what they're teaching. And the reason why is the gospel is under attack. And the gospel needs to be clearly proclaimed and clearly understood by the true church in order for us to carry on the gospel as a witness and a testimony for God's glory and for the salvation of our progeny in the generations to come. Are you with me? If you and I don't carry the banner of the true gospel to the next generation, nobody will. 
Okay, it's our responsibility. We are the people of God. We are the witnesses of God to our generation and to our culture. Amen? Amen. Therefore, we need to clearly understand it. Okay, so again, um, if, if you feel like I'm really heavy on the Roman Catholic system today, it's because I am really heavy on the Roman Catholic system today. And uh, it's for the purpose of clarifying the fundamentals and the essentials of the Christian faith. So with that, I want to get you thinking about this very important question which I asked last week. And think about this and let this question season the things that we are talking about this morning. And that is, is the atonement of Jesus Christ sufficient to justify and reconcile you to God? Is the atonement of Jesus Christ sufficient to save us from our sins and grant to us eternal life as a free gift from God? Is the atonement sufficient? Okay? That is an important question that needs to be asked and answered, and and that's what we're really after here today. And so, if you will, at the bottom of page 94, the Gospel in the Roman Church... Over many years, even centuries, Roman Christianity had morphed and become something very different than its earlier origins of the early church. The institution of several new and unbiblical rituals, traditions, and practices almost completely redefined the church. These church traditions became the focus of the church as she turned her eyes away from the simplicity of the person and work of Christ to the ivory tower of the Roman church. Gradually, over time, these began to severely undermine the sufficiency of the atonement and the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ. Okay, so here's the issue. The issue is, is that the rites and the traditions of the church began to undermine the sufficiency of the atonement and the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ. Okay, so the problem was at its heart and at its center that the gospel was being undermined. The gospel was being clouded. The gospel was being covered up so that when you looked at the religion or the religious institution of the church, you couldn't see the gospel clearly there. Instead, what you saw were all these other things that we're going to talk about. Okay, but the issue was at its heart, at the center that those things were undermining the gospel. They were undermining the true and essential message of Christianity so that the representation of Christianity to the world, instead of being the person and work of Christ, was instead this pompous show of religion. Okay? Much like we see in many Protestant uh, expressions of Christianity in this day and age. How many people are out there in the world who when they think about Christianity, they think about TBN, and they think about the pompous show of religious piety that gets portrayed there on TBN and the foolishness that goes along with it. Okay, And if you will, the very same thing is happening. Through that manifestation of, of, of their religious system, the gospel and the sufficiency of the atonement are being undermined so that the gospel is not clearly being portrayed. Okay? Family, God forbid that that should be said about us. Are you with me? 
In other words, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. Are you with me? And so that's very important to consider. So through these rites and traditions that were added to the church, the sufficiency of the atonement and the doctrine of justification by faith were being undermined. When all of these were added together, it made for a completely different form of Christianity than Jesus and the apostles had taught. The focus had turned from the glorious good news of the person and work of Christ to the veneration of popes and saints, and the church had become the richest institution on the earth off the back of the poor common people who were now to work their way to heaven through their own merit, or worse yet, to purchase it through the sale of indulgences. And if you think I'm um, a little heavy on that point, how many of you have actually been to Rome and been to the Vatican? Okay, I, I had the privilege of going there with my wife a couple of years ago, and I was absolutely shocked at the beauty of St. Peter's Basilica. It was absolutely stunning. Not just stunning, but unbelievably stunning. I could not get over the floor, <laughs> much less the pillars the walls, the ornaments, the, 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 the whole get-up was something just beyond anything I had ever imagined. Surely must be the most beautiful building on the face of the planet. Um, and, and not only that, as one considers what is there, okay, you have to understand that that thing was built in a day and age when money was... Uh, uh, not very easy commodity to come by, especially because during that time and age when that thing was built, the common people were really a peasantry. They were very poor. And and uh, they are the ones that funded the building of that institution. And not only that, I mean, that one building is just one little piece of the whole nation-state of the Vatican, Okay which is, is still, to this day, the richest institution in the world. Okay? It is astounding. It's amazing. I could sit here and try to explain it to you for hours with the little knowledge that I have of it, and it would not do it justice. Okay? It is an, a very, very elaborate, um, pompous display of grandeur like nothing else on the face of the earth. Okay, so <clears throat> it's just something to consider. It's a fact. And the fact is, the common people funded the building of that entire thing. And um, we're going to learn a little bit about how that was represented to the people. And it's going to say a lot about what the church was teaching in regard to the sufficiency of the atonement. Okay, so let's talk about it. A brief survey of Roman rites and traditions. Here is a brief survey of these rites and traditions and a few words about how they ultimately deny essential Christian doctrine. The papacy. Who is the head of Christ's church? Well, that is an easy question if you read the Bible. It is Christ. But in the Roman church, he has been usurped by an earthly head, the so-called vicar of Christ, a man demanding to be called the Holy Father, 
dressed in very costly vestments and living in a palace of unimaginable majesty and pomp. Will a truly godly man actually accept the title of Holy Father? I mean, think about this for a moment. The man is asking to be called the Holy Father. What was your first clue that he didn't come from Christ? Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? This in and of itself is a violation of the teaching of Christ. True? That whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that the most basic thing about coming to Christ? Much less being called the Holy Father, the guardian of the church. Amen? Amen. How about the words head of the church? Tell me, who does that belong to? So if I as a man assume that title, family, from whom did I take it? Are you with me? These things are fundamental. They're so obvious, it, it ought to be staring us right in the face. Okay? Well, <clears throat> much could be said to compare the Pope to the teaching of the Bible, but a simple glance shows him to be far from the model set by Christ and the apostles. I think about the statement of Jesus where he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But you see the head of the church? He lives in a palace of unimaginable majesty. Something wrong with that picture? Further, this papacy is nowhere found in Scripture nor is it even hinted at, much less does it have any didactic passage in Scripture explaining its character and nature. As the Bible clearly teaches a government of local plural elders as servants to the body, the popery of Rome is a pontification of the worst sorts. The very history of the papacy itself is littered with corruption and immorality. How can this be overlooked by any serious student of the Bible? Okay, and so here's what I'm saying. There is something seriously wrong with this picture. What picture? The picture of the papacy, the cardinal, and the special priesthood, the magisterium. Okay, it's a big problem. It's fundamentally corrupt. Okay, now, having said that, I, w- I want to also say that's not to say that there aren't, isn't corruption in the modern evangelical church. Or what should I say, what parades itself, as Rome does, as the true church. Okay? There is certainly corruption there. And not only that, there's a long history of it. Okay? Listen, many antichrists have gone out into the world. They're all around us, family. Okay? That's why it's incumbent upon us to be very discerning. Okay? So I'm not saying that this corruption of the papacy only lives in in the Roman system, okay? But it definitely does live there, okay? And it's something to consider. It's something to consider how blatant. The thing about to me about the papacy is it's so blatant. It's so right out in front. 
How could we possibly think that this person is representing Christ? Or should I say the whole magisterium in and of itself is representing the Christ of the Bible? They are a million miles apart in principle, not to mention on the face of it. Yes? Mm-hmm. In fact, if we did, we were told that we were out of line. Right, so she's mentioning when she grew up and was in catechism, she was being taught that the Pope had the ability to interpret the scripture and that the common people did not. And of course, this is fundamental in, in, in Roman teaching, okay? We're going to get there. But <clears throat> the point is, is that, think about that. Not only is it represented as it is, but it's represented as saying, you can't understand the scripture, I have to tell you what it means. By the way, throw your money in the plate so I can live in a palace of unimaginable majesty. Now, does that sound like something Jesus would teach? I don't think so. It's fundamentally corrupt. It's fundamentally got problems. You know, it's got basic problems that are completely wrong. Are you with me? The priesthood and the monastic societies... Here we have an entire hierarchy of men who claim to be mediators between people and God. These take vows of celibacy, uh, which, by the way, the Bible calls false teaching, right, in the book of 1 Timothy, and wear very costly vestments. Can you see Jesus wearing very costly vestments? All the while the Bible says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. There's one mediator between God and men. Who is it? Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest and family, let me tell you. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood. When he came... He fulfilled it. The Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was fulfilled by Christ and destroyed by God in 70 AD. Jesus is lifted up to the right hand of God having accomplished our redemption once for all time. He is our great high priest. As it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained, past tense, eternal redemption. Are you with me? Do you see the finality in the work that Christ did as our high priest. You see where that was performed? Not in an earthly tabernacle, right? But in the true tabernacle, which is where? In heaven. heaven, The presence of God. Christ took and presented himself there. Once for all time. It is finished. It is complete. He has obtained eternal redemption already. Amen? The redemption, the mediation between God and man has been fulfilled. It's over. It's completed. To die. Are you with me? 
The New Testament nowhere presents a special priesthood. Here is another non-biblical concept of church government which by its very existence and definition undermines the work that Christ has accomplished as our once for all time high priest. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying this special priesthood and the church teaching people that they need a priest in order to go to God is an undermining of Christ's work as our high priest. Not only that, it's a denial of the sufficiency of the priesthood of Christ. Are you with me? Okay. So when you're reading that stuff in Hebrews, this ought to give you some significant things to think about. Are you with me? Christ has fulfilled those things for us. He is our priest. He is our mediator between us and God. Amen? More than this, believing Christians are robbed of an understanding of their true role to a lost world, as now all Christians are seen as a holy nation of priests in the priesthood of all believers with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So here's what the New Testament teaches. Now that Christ has come and become the gospel for us and become the way of God for us and executed the high priesthood of himself, okay, he now has commissioned us to be mediators to the whole world by simply bringing the message of what he has done and completed. And in that sense then, we have what the scripture calls a priesthood. Okay, But it's nothing like the priesthood that has gone before us. You see, that priesthood was committing blood sacrifices. And all the while, that, that uh, God-ordained system of religion, whereby they would perform those sacrifices, those things were pointing where? To Christ. So that when Christ came, he completely fulfilled them. Right? So now, in the New Testament, the only priesthood that exists is the priesthood of people who go out and proclaim the message of what Christ has already completed. And all we simply have to do is point back at Christ and say, Look, we have a mediator. Are you with me? This is how the New Testament describes it. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and then also verses 9 and 10. Peter says, And coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You understand? The scripture says we're a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are those? Those are the things you do as you live your life as a Christian. They consist of worship unto God. They consist of um, good works that you do to people in order to love them into the kingdom of God. They're sacrifices that you make in order to get the gospel to people who desperately need it. Okay? He goes on, verse 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see what he says? 
And he says that we're a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, right? That we may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of God, right? So here's all we do. We have a message. What's the message? The message of the gospel, the message of redemption that God has provided in Christ. So what do we do? We simply proclaim it. We tell others that there is a mediator who's been sent by God so that they can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. That they no longer have to be afraid of death, but that they can come to God through Christ and be saved from sin and death. Amen? Yes, sir. Um, did not that false dichotomy between the laity and the priesthood start with, with the Nicolaitans that Jesus condemned in Revelation 2 and 3? That way it really begins. I'm sure that it has manifestations all the way back to the first century. Right? And it's it's something that characterizes most false teachers. And that is, you know, they're set apart as the prophet. They're set apart as the interpreter. Right? And and you need their special gifting in order for you to understand the secret message of true religion. Are you with me? These are the kind of things that, that uh, season and characterize false teachers, okay, and false systems of, of religion, okay? And every false religion has one or more, right? Um, <clears throat> okay, so then, the Eucharist and transubstantiation. In the Roman celebration of the Lord's Supper, they have a unique teaching which suggests that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus, that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. This Eucharist is seen as a sacrifice of Christ, which happens again and again to cleanse those who draw near to worship. So here's the idea. At the Mass, when they present the Eucharist, through the um, working of the ceremony, the body and, uh, I'm sorry, the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus and are, if you will, replayed as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of those who are there partaking of the Mass in order to cover their sins. Okay? The issue here is that it is taught by Rome and suggests to the people of the church that sins that they have now committed have not yet been covered by the blood of Christ until it is reapplied in the Eucharist. Now, this idea severely undermines the work of Christ as our priest and violates the biblical teaching that Christ was offered once for all time and that in this he did in fact atone for all the sins of all of his people and that through this one sacrifice has perfected forever those who trust him by faith. Okay? So... You have to understand, what are we saying if you have to come to a celebration of the Lord's Supper and partake in this special ceremony in order for your sins to be atoned for? What are we saying about the sacrifice that Christ already performed once for all time? Well, we're saying that it wasn't a sacrifice that was once for all time, aren't we? Because we need to do it what? Again and again and again and again. But Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 15 says something very different, family. There it says, by this will, we have been, you get that? We have been sanctified. 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can, what? Never. Never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For, get this, and memorize this verse of scripture. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You understand what that means? That means when Jesus gave his life in sacrifice on the cross, he perfected forever all the saints of God throughout all the ages of history. Oh yeah, and it's more than that too. Because even after you do all that, right, she's talking, she says it's more than that. You gotta go to confession. You gotta, you know, you gotta go through all the rites and practices of the church. And, and what I'm telling you, it's even more than that. Because once you've done all of that, you still have to go suffer in purgatory. Which is where you'll be purged from your sins and ultimately be made righteous through that suffering. Okay? in order that you can finally enter heaven. You think I'm, I'm teasing. I'm not teasing. I'm telling you the official teaching of the church. Now tell me, what does that say about the sufficiency of the priesthood of Christ? What does that say about the sufficiency of the one for all time sacrifice that he committed? What does that say about, for by one offering he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified? Are you with me? I'll tell you what it says. It denies it. It teaches something different. It's saying that that part of the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Okay? Right? Yes, sir. What's interesting is when the general Catholic population, you ask them about some of these uh, teachings about the uh, transubstantiation and praying to the saints and the veneration of Mary, a lot of them don't even, they don't believe or trust the teachings of the church. So you ask them, why are you even there? Mm -hmm. And they can't answer, right? So... Right. Well, so not only that, not not uh, maybe you heard him. I'm I'm not sure I could repeat exactly what he said, but let me elaborate on that just a bit. Not only do many Catholics not necessarily believe all of the teaching of the Roman Church, but many of them are ignorant of the true teachings of the Roman Church. And 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 let me also say that that looks very much like evangelical Christianity. That most Christians who call themselves Christians are, are rather ignorant about what the Bible really teaches. Not just that, but consider the very main thing of the whole Bible, which is the person and the work of Jesus Christ as expressed in the gospel, which we could also express in three of the five solas by saying that justification happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Are you with me? And, and that most evangelicals can't really even tell you about that. But family, that's the main message. That is the main thing. Okay, you see why it's important that we really articulate these things well so that we as Christians know what we believe and know why we believe it so that we're not led astray by some religious institution or by some great prophet or some system of religion that has morphed over time into something very different than what Jesus actually delivered to us? 
Are you with me? Yeah. These things are very important. Okay, these things are very important. Yes, sir. Okay, the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation is, if you will, a migration from transubstantiation to what I believe to be the true uh, celebration of the Eucharist, which is simply representational. So consubstantiation teaches that there is an element of the presence of Christ that is with us, thus the term con, right, in the celebration of the Eucharist. And, of course, they have a whole teaching about how that becomes a fundamental means of grace and a fundamental means of salvation to those who worship. Okay? And Lutheranism does have some issues like that. And that's not just, that's just one of many. Okay? But again, we could look critically at many different denominational systems and what they teach. And the answer is it's not about what any denominational system teaches, right? But it's about what, does, what has God revealed to us in the Bible, right? Because the Bible, sola scriptura, is the final rule of faith and practice for Christian life. Amen? And for Christian worship. And for the defi- de- definition of the church. Okay? And so uh, it's very important to understand these things. And so, you know, I would say along with that Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, we ought to be looking critically at, at the religious system that we're in, right? And it ought, to, it ought to stand up against the Scripture. And wherever it doesn't, we ought to be protesting so that we have an ongoing reformation that's constantly taking place in the church. So that the church is always and continually being conformed more and more after the image of the true church as revealed in the Bible and as, as led by Christ who is the only head of the church. Amen? Are you with me? How many of you would like to have an ongoing reformation? Well, let it start right here. Let it start with us. And let us humble ourselves enough to be challenged in those things which we believe and those things which we teach and those things which we hold convictions over. And let our convictions be firmly grounded in the text of Scripture and not a misrepresentation of Scripture, but in a clear understanding of what the Bible is clearly saying. Are you with me? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Okay? Okay, one more, and then we're going to move on. Right. Well, you know, of course, in Catholic theology, let me, she's asking, what does a Roman system actually say about what Christ truly did? Okay. Well, let me tell you. Uh, Let me try to simplify it with my limited understanding of that. Okay. Here's what they say. They say that he performed everything necessary in order for salvation by God's grace to have an object of faith. Okay, so that Christ is actually the fundamentum of it all. Okay, but that once that faith is employed upon that object of Christ, it has to be carried through by all the works of satisfaction in the church, which are many and varied. Okay, not to mention which would be, for instance, perseverance uh, in good works until the end, uh, uh, by which 
no one will actually have a righteousness that's sufficient to enter heaven. And, and whatever, wherever they're lacking in that righteousness throughout the living of their life, they have to go to purgatory in order to be purged of any remaining sin in order to uh, uh, actually be cleansed of the sin which is inherent in the person. So the, the fundamental teaching really comes down to the doctrine of sola fide and what, what the Protestants are saying is justification by faith in Christ. The Catholics would say justification, trying to simplify it, is by faith in Christ plus the process of inherent righteousness being uh, 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 molded into the person's very being over time until they are actually become righteous at which time they can enter heaven. So, and of course, that gets very complicated. And uh, with that comes all these doctrines of things that have to take place. Let me talk some more about it because it's going to begin to shine some light on those areas. So we were talking about the scripture in Hebrews where it said that Christ was our once for all sacrifice and and that in that sacrifice he's already perfected for all time those who are sanctified and already atoned for all the sins of all of his people for all time. Are you with me? So he does not have to be re-sacrificed again and again to atone for sins. But the Roman church maintains that Christ must be re-sacrificed again and again in order for the sins of the worshipers to be cleansed. This is why they hold the Mass daily. Again, this undermines the sufficiency of the atonement which Christ has accomplished. A couple more scriptures from Hebrews. Hebrews 7, 26 and following. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You understand? Christ's sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. He doesn't need to, to do it daily, again and again and again, like all those other priests who in their sacrifices could never take away sins. He did it once. He did it for all time. Okay? We simply remember that in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We simply look at the elements and we see the representation of what Christ has already accomplished. And in that, we celebrate and rejoice what God has done for us. Okay? Hebrews 9.25 Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay? Let me rephrase that. Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's done. It's over. It's finished. There's no more sacrifices, family. Okay. Purgatory. The Roman Catechism states, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect. I gave you the web address where I 
read that off of the Catholic Catechism at the Vatican website. Now consider what is being implied in this teaching. It surely says that it is possible for a Christian to die in a state imperfectly purified and that they need to undergo purification in order to achieve the holiness necessary to enter heaven. Again, we have a doctrine that severely undermines the sufficiency of the atonement that Christ has accomplished. The clear denial of the gospel here is evident to all. Does the believer in Christ need to achieve the holiness necessary through the torment of flames? Or has it been achieved by Christ already by his death on the cross? Let us hear God's commentary on this matter. Colossians 1, verse 21 and following. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see how Christ presents you before the Father? Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now I want to ask you a question. How many of you are holy and blameless and beyond reproach in your practice? Right? But how many of you stand in Christ before the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach? Every one of you who has trusted Christ by faith. Are you with me? You see the the distinction there? Yes, sir. It's true of all the saints. No, no. I'm, I'm telling you, it's true of all the saints, and in, including all the popes, because the popes are, are, are infallible. Right. Okay? So they get to go straight to heaven, but the average person's got to go to purgatory. You got it. So the priests have to go to purgatory, or would they get to go straight Only to if they get venerated as a saint okay. do they have enough merit to enter heaven. Okay? And, and of course, that's where the teaching about the treasury of merit and the doctrine of indulgences comes from. So the saints have so much merit that it's overflowing. And what overflows from their life goes into this bank account in the church called the treasury of merit. Okay? Okay? And and so then what happens is is that when you when you when you get indulgences you get this meritorious value that comes out of the overflow of the life of the saints and it gets applied to you through the indulgence. Okay, an indulgence can come in many different, many varied ways. Okay, but so it, it, again, it says to you, it says to you something about the nature of what those teachings mean in regard to the sufficiency of the atonement. Okay, and let me tell you something, family, that you know, this isn't a funny thing. It's really not. And I understand the tendency to want to to, to want to, uh, you know, kind of laugh about it. But but I want you to understand, people have strong convictions about these things. And they're very near and dear to their heart, their whole family many times. Many of you know this better than I do. You've been raised in this understanding, okay? And it's, it, it surely is not something to laugh about. This is a very serious matter, okay? And it's something that we as as born-again, evangelical, gospel-believing Christians need to be able to articulate to people. 
Because if, if you have people who really believe this doctrine right here, they are lost. And that's what I am telling you. These are essential, fundamental doctrines of the gospel that if they are violated, that person, by virtue of what they believe, cannot be saved. You can only be saved if you're trusting in Christ and what He has done for salvation, plus nothing. Okay? Because it's that plus that you're going to fail at. (laughs) Okay? And your righteousness is going to come up short before the Holy God. And the only means for the full sufficiency of what Christ has done to be appropriated to somebody is by faith alone. Are you with me? And that is exactly what I'm saying. And that makes this a very serious matter. Okay? And, and, and for you people who, are, who have, have Catholic roots and Catholic family, you need to be able to articulate these things in a very gentle and gracious and respectful way. Okay, and I, if I sound in any way arrogant or like I'm mocking in any way these things, trust me, that is not my motivation at all. Okay, this is a serious matter, and and it's something we need to know well because, especially in a place like New Mexico, right? The the, the there's a lot of Roman influence in this state, and uh, it's very important for us to be able to explain to people why if they believe these things, that those things are going to be insufficient on the day of God's judgment in Christ. Are you with me? And that's why I'm saying that it's this gospel that is on display here, okay? And and this gospel is the essential message of Christianity. What must a person believe in order to be saved? Well, family, we've been discussing it since September. Actually, since... A year ago, September. Right? And it's important for us to be able to articulate these things. And I'm, I'm going to continue to try to elaborate. Um, but how about something as simple as Ephesians 1.7, where the scripture clearly says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How simple could the Bible be? in saying to us that redemption comes through the blood of Christ and through that redemption we have forgiveness of sins. You can rest. Trust in Jesus. He's the Savior. You couldn't save yourself if you tried. Amen? Amen. But Jesus did a fine job at it. Consider how this undermines the love and mercy of God held out in the gospel. Consider how purgatory undermines the love and mercy of God held out in the gospel. Shall our loving Heavenly Father call us to repentance and faith and then cast us into the flames of purification so that we can be adequately tormented for our sins? What about it? I'm reminded of, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that says we're not appointed unto wrath, but we're appointed unto salvation. You understand? When God saves you, He doesn't save you to torment you in the flames of hell. Okay? That's what He saved you out of. (laughs) Family? Okay? Let me make it even more clear. There's no such thing as purgatory. If you are in Christ, when you die, you enter the presence of God forever. 
Okay? And if you're not, purgatory ain't going to end. Okay? You with me? Okay. These truths remind me of why the Roman Church tried so so vehemently to uh, to keep the Scripture trapped in Latin. Yeah, because it it uh, once once the common man understands the Scripture, it really begins to shine a light on the things they've been teaching. Amen. And and I think the problem is is far more complex than that, even far more complex than we can possibly imagine, right? And uh, praise God, pra- praise God that that God has brought these things about in the course of history, right? And and uh, and and let us with those who were brave enough to stand up and say what is right and and stake their life on the truth of God's word. Let us be just like them, and mimic their spirit in this age, even if it costs us terrible persecution. Because I want to tell you, the gospel is under attack in this age, just like it was in that age. And those were the means uh, that the enemy was doing it then. We have a whole new means, and even more deceptive means now in this day and age. Okay? And don't let us for a minute think that this kind of thing doesn't live in the evangelical Christian church. It does. And I point it out to you all the time. Okay? And so it's important for us to understand these things. I've got to move on. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You understand? We've been saved from the wrath of God. We're not appointed unto wrath. We're appointed unto salvation. Further, how long is long enough in the fire to atone for sins? I tell you, one sin is worthy of eternal fire with no hope of ever escaping. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What I'm saying is, you commit one sin and the worthy judgment is hell forever. And you've committed thousands. Okay? And I don't care how long you go to the fire, you're never going to atone for the heinous crime that you have committed against the Holy God. Are you with me? There, there can be no purging through suffering of sin. Okay? Uh-huh. Absolutely. You know, here's a man that's got no good works. I mean, if it's faith plus works, man, he's in big trouble. Because he's nailed to a cross. <laughs> right? However, it was a mere expression of faith which he had in his heart. That faith of which had its object as Christ and his redemption was complete. Even dying as a murderer nailed to a cross. That's the glory of the redemption that is in Christ by faith. Are you with me? Romans 8, 1 and 2 says that there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
I want to uh, try to, oh, I'm sorry. I just don't have the time. I'm going to have to take up next week. I'll tell you what was fascinating for me was I went to the to the Vatican website and I actually looked at some of the documents including the catechism and the, uh, the there's several other documents they have there the code of canon law and so on and so forth and uh, it's amazing to actually read what their confessions are another uh, very telling thing to read about essential doctrine as far as Rome is concerned is the Council of Trent. <coughs> Okay, the Council of Trent is, is really where they, they finally kind of brought the whole thing to a head on the Roman side and said, now what are all these reformers teaching, right? Can it be accepted or does it need to be condemned? Okay, and that's where they actually gave their judgment concerning these things that the reformers were teaching. That is the Council of Trent, okay? The canons of which are recorded for everybody to read, Okay. But uh, they're rather amazing. As I was reading through, I was really amazed to see the things that they were actually saying. Um, and, and so again, uh, next week we're going to talk about indulgences, but then I'm going to move into the, the, the Reformation principles, which are summed up in what we call the five solas. And uh, it's, I, if you're on, my, on the class email list, I emailed you just this morning, a, an article on the five solas, which says a lot. Uh, but I, I want you to pay attention to something on that article. And that is, he's pointing out that these things weren't just problems in the Roman church. But he's pointing out how they are alive and well in modern evangelicalism. Okay, The author is Michael Horton. You might be familiar with him. He's the guy at White Horse Inn. And um, he is a very uh, well-educated teacher about the Reformation and the things thereof. And um, he's got some amazing things to say. If you're familiar with his writing, he, he tracks all of American history and shows how these, these very things that the Reformers were warring against back then have recapitulated themselves in, in the modern so-called true church. And uh, very important to pay attention to those things that are said there. If you're not on the class email list, it's back there on the table. Give me your email address and I'll send you that kind of stuff when, when I have it. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, uh, the thing that comes to my mind is concern for uh, uh, Catholic family, Catholic believers, and specifically, God, where their faith is the object of their faith, and is it entirely and solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished? God, if it's not, I pray that you would give us words of life to speak to them, that they can be set free from the prison and the chains of such a thing as believing that we will somehow merit your righteousness, God. I pray, Father, that you will grant gracious, loving, kind words that, that show and, and show the error of these things and that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear for those that we are concerned about. God, I pray that you would help us to see that we are the agents of this change in our culture, in our family, in, in, in that sphere of influence that you have given each one of us by your good providence. 
And I pray that you'd give us boldness, God. Help us to understand the severity of these things. And Lord, as we are learning about the true biblical gospel, that you would give us words to speak to others and a tender heart of pastoral compassion for those we speak to. I pray that you'll strengthen our faith, God, and help us to be shining lights in this dark world. It is because of Jesus' precious blood that we pray. Amen.